now Count Nicholas von Zinderdorf, who I've mentioned before was a German nobleman who was born into great power and privilege. He lived from 1700 to 1760. During his life, he founded, is known for founding the Moravian Church, or is it the Moravian Church? And over the course of his life, he spent his wealth uh, down practically to zero and to do good deeds. And Count Nicholas literally poured himself out for others. When we think of people in history who have poured themselves out for the gospel, we think of Count Nicholas von Zinderdorf. Why did he do that? What motivated him to live in such a radical way of reducing all of his wealth down to zero? Why did he live so radically? Well, the story goes that as a 19-year-old, Count Nicholas was sent to visit the capital cities of Europe in order to complete his education. One day, he found himself in the art gallery of Dasseldorf, and he was gazing at Domenico Fetti's portrait uh, of the Lord Jesus wearing the crown of thorns. The image of our Lord Jesus suffering, as it were, as he, how he suffered on the cross, moved young Nicholas. And as he looked at the bottom of this portrait that had been painted, the artist had written some words to go with it. It had the words that we might say Christ might say to any of us or all of us this evening. The words simply said this. All of this I did for you. What have you done for me? That's what was written at the bottom. All of this I did for you. What have you done for me? The radical life of Count Nicholas illustrates an important truth, doesn't it? The truth we find throughout the Bible. And the truth is this, that all followers of Christ follow him in how Christ lived. Right? We follow him in how Christ lived for us. That's the core of the Christian life. If anyone who comes after me, he must take up the cross and follow him. And we see that in the lives of the apostles. They literally did that. And one of the things that Christ calls us to do is to share in his suffering. To share in his suffering. This morning we started looking at the marks of true Christian ministry. Uh, we find these marks in the description of Paul's own ministry in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 to verse, 20, verse 24 to verse 26. Uh, this morning we looked at the first mark, servanthood, right? And one of the lessons we learned this morning is that all followers of Jesus are called to minister to each other. And I made this point that there is no small work in the work for the Lord. Everything we do, whatever we do for the least of the brothers, we do it for him. And there's plenty to do in ministering um, in the life of the church and beyond. And what we do in the, in the name of Christ, uh, whether at the church here or wherever God has placed us, has infinite value. Because Christ himself has infinite worth. So we look at servanthood, where this evening we are looking at the second mark of Christian service, we might say, or Christian ministry. And this is the mark of suffering. Please look with me at there at verse 24 to verse 25. Just read those words again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I want us to focus on verse 24 in particular. And I think we can summarize the truth that Paul is teaching us in verse 24 in simply one sentence. True Christian ministry or true serving means suffering for Christ with joy. True Christian ministry means suffering for Christ with joy. Paul in verse 24 is reminding us that suffering and serving are married together. They are like the left and right shoe. Right? You can't have one without the other. It's impossible. It comes together. Right? And we know that because Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison cell. He's imprisoned there in Rome for preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the Gentiles. And we expect him to start doubting whether all of this suffering is worth it. Right? But he's not. In fact, Paul is rejoicing. Now I rejoice, he says there, in my sufferings for your sake. Paul is rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Well, the answer is, he's rejoicing for the Colossians. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, the Colossians, he said. Paul is saying, look, I am not discouraged to be in prison because I know that my suffering is worth it. Why is it worth it? Because it is for your sake. What does Paul mean by that? It is for their sake. Well, I think it means that he's suffering in chains, right? Because he has been preaching the gospel of Christ. And this gospel of Christ has now spread to Colossae. He's suffering because he's been raising leaders who are in turn taking forward the preaching of the gospel. And one of these leaders, of course, is Epaphras. You see, if Paul was not a servant of Christ, he would not be in chains. He would not be in the Roman Belmash. And the only reason he's there is because he's been busy on the streets telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it is in doing that that the Colossians have indirectly heard the good news of Jesus through Pastor Epaphras, who has been mentored by Paul. And so Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And so we ask the question, Why is why is this suffering for the Colossians worth it? Why? Yes, he's in, he's in prison because he's been sharing the gospel. Why is that worth it? Well, why does it bring him joy? Well, the answer is in the rest of verse 24. Because the suffering for the Colossians is really the suffering for Christ. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or sufferings for the sake of his body that is the church boy is saying look i am suffering to fill up what is lacking in christ's affliction it's quite a statement isn't it what does paul mean here that he's filling up what is lacking in christ's affliction well we know already from what we've looked at so far in colossians that there's nothing really lacking in christ's affliction in terms of his serving work we know that Jesus died and rose to save us from sin. 
The suffering of Christ is perfect and complete in serving his people. There's nothing lacking in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is clear already from what we've seen in Colossians just chapter 1. And let's just remind us, if you just glance over that chapter, we have already seen in this chapter that Christ has qualified us to enter heaven. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have already seen that Christ has therefore delivered us from the dark powers of sin, of death, hell, and Satan. That's done. He has delivered us. Past tense. We have seen that Christ has given us forgiveness and redemption from sin. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom what? We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We also know that Christ has already made us his body because verse 18 tells us that he's the head of the, his body, the church. We know that we are part of this new humanity, this new creation in which Christ is now preeminent. We know that Christ has granted us peace with God. That's verse 21 to verse 22. We know he has made us holy, blameless, and above reproach. He will present us like that before himself. That's verse 22. And as we turn to chapter 2, we discover more wonderful truths of what Christ has done. For example, we know we are filled with God. I mean, that's amazing. Believers are filled with God. That's chapter 2, verse 10. We know we are united to Christ. His life is our life. His glory is our glory. We are no longer dead. We are no longer dead in sin. We are now dead to sin. That's chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, and chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. And we can just go on and on. That's just Colossians, but the rest of the New Testament speaks to these truths. All of these wonderful truths and more, Christ has already achieved. He cried on the cross, it is finished. The work is complete. And we are complete in him. That's the theme of Colossians. We are complete in Christ. And yet Paul here says, isn't it? I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, what is lacking is that Christ has left the, some form of suffering for us as a church to go through. This is the suffering of spreading the good news of Jesus. Christ died, but he has given us the privilege of sharing in his suffering. He left the suffering for us of sharing the gospel. That's one form of suffering. The second suffering Christ has left is the suffering we experience in sanctification. As God makes us more like Christ. So the atoning work of Christ is complete, but Christ by his providence could have just zapped us to heaven. But he has left some suffering for us to go through. As part of his work in our lives. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, Christ has brought me on board as his co-worker to share in the suffering of growing his church. Christ has done everything to serve me. It is all completed. But he has given me this glorious privilege of sharing in that suffering that involves me serving his church. And as far as Paul is concerned... Beloved, there is nothing negative about the suffering you are going through. There is nothing negative. 
It is all positive. Because if you are in Christ, it is for Christ. And especially if you are suffering for the advancement of the gospel, it is glorious, it's a privilege for you to go through that. Because it is what? It is for Christ. Now, this may sound strange to us here, sat here this evening, but I hope it isn't. But we have to remember one reason we struggle with this truth is that we, when Paul says Christ, he has a clear view of Christ better than us. I would say. Because for us, Christ can just be a word. But when Paul speaks of Christ, what does he have in mind? He has in mind verse 15 to verse 20. Whenever we read Christ, that's who Paul means. The Christ of Paul. Christ is Christ our God. He's the image of the invisible God. Christ is our supreme the firstborn over all creation. That's for Paul. Christ is our creator. He created all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created for him, by him, and through him. Is, is Christ is a sustainer to Paul. You know, in him all things all together. Christ is the head, isn't it, for Paul. He's the head of the church, his body. Why? So that in him, in my, so that through the church, through his, through his body, he might be preeminent. So Christ is the preeminent one. And of course, Christ is the temple of God. In him, the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 19. And for Paul, Christ is the reconciler. Verse 20, 21, 22. He brings peace. To us. Paul, this is Paul saying to the Colossians, isn't it? It is such a privilege for me to suffer for you because you are the body of Christ. And Christ is my amazing God, my creator and my savior. I am in, in a fellowship of suffering with the wonderful Christ. That is why I'm rejoicing. Paul has a big Christ, a big Christ in his mind. How can he not rejoice? You know, Paul is like a woman who has just given birth through a painful process. The pain is real. But in the middle of, his, or, or, of that pain, there is joy of the new birth. The pain is not a wasted or pointless pain. There is a purpose to it. A child has been born. So the woman is suffering now with joy of that child. Uh, you know, the, the mother is probably crying with tears as she gives birth. But they are tears of joy. A bit like wonderful wedding, isn't it? We had a bit of tears of joy in a joyful occasion, but the joy. That's Paul's tears here. While in prison he's suffering, but he's full of joy. Paul has joy in his heart, not because it, it doesn't hurt being in a prison cell, but because he has a big Christ. He knows he's saving Christ, and Christ is worth it. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. It is for him, for the sake of his body, that is the church. 
The church is the body of Christ. And Paul counts it as a privilege to suffer for Christ. It is this knowledge of who Christ is and what the church is. We'll come back to that in a moment. That brings joy to Paul. And we see this similar joy, by the way, in the middle of suffering, in the ministry of the apostles. Do you remember? They rejoiced at the privilege of suffering for Christ. In that famous passage, Acts 5, uh, verse 40 to 42. In Acts 5, chapter, the, you know, the, the, the verse speaks for itself. I'll just read verse 40 to 42. And, the, and when they, that is the Sanhedrin, had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were, what? Counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, verse 42, and every day in the temple, right? Where they're not supposed to be. And they've been told not to do it. And every day in the temple, and it gets worse, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They counted him worthy of being arrested again, being imprisoned, and they're rejoicing. They are glorying in their weakness. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life that God allows those who he raises up to serve him, to suffer for serving him. And sometimes the suffering is deep. Because you would have thought that God would have his dedicated servant Paul. You know, he's like number 11, <laughs> right? In this, in, this, in, this, in this New Testament football team. I mean, this is the man leading the way. He's the, he's the I don't know, Messi of, of the, right? Of the, of the spiritual team. You would have thought they want to look after him. You know, God want to look after him, bring the best physios, ensuring everything in his life is going perfect so that Paul can just stand up and preach. Right? But no. Paul is serving Christ under the banner of pain. The kingdom of Christ is truly an upside kingdom. He has designed that we followers of Jesus, as we serve him, we should share in his suffering. In order to make him known. I just want to make the point here that when Paul speaks of, of, of filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, we must remember that even in this remaining suffering, as we might call it, remaining suffering, it is not ultimately Paul's work. It is also Christ who's working in through Paul. Why do I say that? Because of a passage we'll come to. Verse 28. Look at verse 28 to 29. We'll look at it in the future. What does he say? He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And look what he says, verse 29. For this I toil. We might even say, for this I suffer. Struggling with all that is Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see? In verse 24, Paul is not saying he's suffering for Christ on his own. Rather, it is Christ, God, doing it through him. Paul is actually suffering in submission to the will of God. Paul's role is a submission. 
The whole thing is being done by God to strengthening him from within. God has ordained that serving Christ in sharing the gospel, in building up the church, is accompanied with suffering. To serve Christ is to suffer. And this is a hard truth, isn't it, for us? I just want to say this is a hard truth. And that's why serving in the church requires Christian maturity. Because if you're a new Christian and you start serving, you're not going to understand this. It will ruin your life, you might say, to suffer in that situation. You must be mature to take on certain tasks in the life of the church. Because this is a hard truth we must grasp even before we put ourselves in certain areas of service in the life of the church. Particularly as elders and deacons, we must grasp this, the suffering that comes with this. So then, to serve Christ is to suffer. The question is, how should we respond to this truth that true Christian ministry means suffering with joy? I just want to suggest practical responses um, to take away from this um, passage. First of all, we must accept this truth that serving Christ and his church means suffering as we serve him. Believe this truth. Accept it. Accept that just as Christ suffered in his service, you, his servant, must suffer. Just as Paul suffered in his life, just as John the Baptist suffered, was beheaded, just as Stephen, Antipas, and countless servants of Christ have suffered in history, if you desire to serve Christ, you will suffer. It is impossible to look through the Bible and change history and not notice that the most famous servants of God suffered for the church. We don't have to do the whole throw of the church. I've already mentioned some names. But just to remind you of 1 Peter 2, verse 21, which underpins all of this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example so that you might follow in his steps. As I said, this is hard for us to accept. We want to be, we want God to make an exception for us. We want to be great evangelists from our comfortable sofas and large TV screens. And they are getting large, aren't they? These TV screens, I mean, they are just getting large all the time now. And very cheap as well. And they used to be in the past. We want to be great evangelists from that. Streaming YouTube on that and, and we just be comfortable there. We want the world to hear the gospel without we ourselves suffering for it. We want to lead a ministry in the church without any opposition to us. I mean, I'm speaking for myself. That's human nature. You, you want to lead without any opposition. That's human nature. We want to become teachers and preachers without suffering loss, suffering pain, or any disappointment. We want God. We are praying for revival, right? We are praying that God would revive this nation. But I'm pretty sure many of us want it without persecution. And of course, this is true for any areas of service outside the church. You want to be a great parent, a great grandmom. A great-grandparent without sacrificing any time or comfort on your part. 
You know better, of course, you used to be a mom. You're a mom and you know it's part and back to being a mom, an effective mom to suffer. But now that you're a grandparent, you may think, well, I need the comfort. Right? You want to be a good employee without opposition and struggles at work. You think a great place of work is where there is no opposition to you. And you think that's what God desires for you. You think God desires for you to be in a workplace where there is no opposition. You want to be a good neighbor without having rude neighbors. <laughs> you think a good neighborhood where I can be a real wonderful neighbor where I invite my people for, 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 for barbecues and everything else, right? Is one where there are no, no one is rude to us. That is normal, isn't it? We want that. And it's normal for us because we are not created to suffer. Suffering is alien to us. It is a product of the fall. It is normal for us to think life is better without suffering. There's no one who doesn't think life would be better without suffering. Except when we open the Bible. Because suffering is the ink through which God writes our lives in the scriptures. The Bible is reminding us that here in the fallen world, God has redeemed suffering. He has married suffering with our service to God. And we need to accept this truth as believers. And, and I think we are not accepting this truth the way we live. We are too comfortable as believers, especially in the West. And we need to accept this, especially if we desire to be of great service to God. Because if we don't accept this truth, we're never going to endure. We're never going to have stickability. We'll start something, stop. The church will always be struggling to get its ministry off of that because Christians are just too comfortable. I wonder what ministry in this church is God calling you to and you don't want to do it because you feel lazy and the reason you are lazy is because you love your comfortable life. You don't want to suffer. Think about your life outside church. Where is God calling you to be his servant? Or, and you just don't want to do it because it's too hard or costly. I'm thinking here perhaps in your family. Is there something God, you know that God will love you to, to just live for him in that area, but you just think, it's too much. Extended family, I'm not picking up that call. It's too costly for me. But you know God wants you to pick up that call. Is it your place of work? Is it in your friendships? What situation is difficult and God wants you to suffer in it, but you don't want it? We need to ask ourselves, accept serving Christ means suffering for Christ. In fact, I would even go further. I think if you're not suffering for Christ, the chances that you're not really serving him at the moment. If it's not costing you anything at the moment, the chances is you're not, you're not serving him. This is the principle David has established for us, isn't it? I will not give God anything that costs me nothing. The way of service is the way of suffering. And it took me a while to learn this truth, and I'm still learning it. I didn't even get this truth when I became a pastor. I have to confess that. I've learned it here. And so this evening, I just want to encourage you, answer the call to suffer in serving God. Accept that God has married your service to him in the church and beyond with suffering. How can we know that we have accepted this truth, that our suffering and ministry go together? 
Well, by rejoicing in the middle of this suffering. That's the second practical direction. First practical direction, accept serving Christ means suffering. The second one I want to just give you is thank God. Start thanking God for the privilege of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Start thanking him, beloved. Stop mourning. Start thanking. You know, Paul is rejoicing. But when I say stop mourning, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> Speak to my wife. <laughs> so she tell you. I'm talking to myself. I need to stop mourning and start thanking God. Thank God that your suffering as you serve His church is not being wasted. It has a purpose. And the purpose is to bring glory to Christ in this world. Thank God that your suffering for serving Christ is an instrument God uses to make you a better servant of Christ. Thank God that you are becoming like Christ through the scapel of suffering. Thank God that your suffering is a tool God is using to make you have total attention and total devotion to Him. God is making you more focused on Him. Jennifer Reis Lacombe, in her book, Journey into God's Heart, uh, tells of how she lost a lot in her life. Her husband left her. Her children left the nest as they grew up. And she felt quite alone. But you know what? God was still with her. And she writes in the book this. She says this, I seem to have lost everything. My children, after 28 years of motherhood, my husband and the security of his love, my job, my reputation, and I am likely to lose my home, she says. I've lost my freedom too. I'm stuck here with my mother-in-law. But at Keswick, she says, at Keswick Convention, Last September, I prayed. I prayed this to the Lord. Lord, give me you and you alone, whatever the cost. Lord, give me you and you alone, whatever the cost. And then she says this, and now I really do have him. He is all I have left. If he's willing to take everything from me, simply to get my attention, my company, my time, wow, she says, I must be so precious to him. That's our lesson. And she's reminding us, isn't it, that suffering in our lives, whether it's opposition, whether it's health or family or any other circumstances, are used by the God to grow our servanthood as they did for Jennifer. And you and I must therefore thank God for that. So accept, serving Christ means suffering. Thank Christ for the privilege of sharing his suffering. And the third practical direction I have for you is that repent of the tendency, therefore, to avoid suffering as we serve him. The single big reason many of us are not serving effectively is because we regard it as too costly for us. We want, as I said, we want everything easy for us. We want the broad road of easy serving rather than the narrow way of opposition, disappointments, and heartache. 
We do not want to serve because we think it is not worth the pain. We feel our labor in the church is often a complete waste of time and energy. We quietly ask ourselves, don't we, why should I spend time with that brother? When after I finish chatting to him, he's only going to slander me afterwards. I know him already. He's only going to slander me to others. Right? So we avoid them, don't we? As Christians, we do this at work, don't we? We, we know there's a bad guy there. We just avoid them completely. So rather than us being an example and serving them, we avoid them. We think to ourselves, what is the point of putting a lot of effort in preparing a Sunday school lesson when the kids are often distracted? So what do we do? We still turn up, but we do the minimum. We leave it to the last minute. Leftovers for the Lord. We do, it the, we do the minimum. Why should I bother to give out flyers when no one seems to turn up? I've asked myself this one quite a number of times. Why do we do carol services? I mean, no one really returns, do they? Why go through all the pain for nothing? I'm not saying we should suspend wisdom, we should be efficient, of course. But often what happens is that if something is not working, we stop doing it, really because we just want a comfortable life. So we stop evangelism. We don't evangelize many of us because it's costly to us. We ask ourselves, why should I give up an afternoon rest and support the gathered evening worship of God? When I've already been to church, and so we find it so easy to stay at home. But Paul says, true Christian ministry is not about you, first and foremost. He's told us that in the morning. But most importantly, he tells us here, true Christian ministry means suffering for the Lord and his church. Don't ask what is in it for me. Ask, does this bring glory to Christ? It is not wasted effort if it is suffering for Christ. And so, beloved, let us repent of any areas, not just in the life of the church, but any areas where God has placed you where you are. You are refusing to serve God the way he's commanded you. You, you, you. you are trying to avoid the costs. There may be emotional costs. There may be physical costs. There may be financial costs. Let us resolve to repent for failing to see that our suffering for Christ is positive and is purposeful. And the final thing we need to do is that we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray. Let us pray to God to make us more willing to suffer for him. Paul prayed for the endurance of the saints, didn't he? Uh, In verse 9 to verse 12 there. Well, let us pray for God to make us willing to suffer for him. We cannot make our hearts embrace this truth. Trust me, the moment you leave this building, Satan will do everything he can to make you forget that. Even as I preach, Satan is finding reasons why. Oh, he's just mouthing off, isn't he? Chola is off at it again, right? Satan suggests things constantly. He doesn't want you to embrace this truth. And so we must ask God to help us. We must ask, we must do what the, what the, what the revivalists used to do, those who used to pray during the time of revival, particularly in the, in the, in the, in the revival in the hybrids or the, the Welsh one. They were praying, Lord, bend our will to yours. That, that was just their prayer. Lord, bend our will to yours. Just, they just kept praying like that. Just kept praying like that. And the Lord bent the will to, 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 to God's will and revival came. And we need to pray that God does the same thing for us when it comes to this truth. I just want to leave you with two things you need to pray for. First of all, pray specifically 
that God will give you a glorious vision of the wonder and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we must be praying for. The key to suffering, the key to having joy in the middle of suffering is to be clear about who we are suffering for. It's so important we get that. Many of us gladly suffer for our kids, don't we? Why do we do it? Because the children mean the world to us. You would move heaven and earth for your kids. You would suffer to the end of the earth, the earth for them. We may mourn about our kids from time to time, but deep in our hearts we regard it as such a tremendous blessing, a badge of honor. We gladly bear pain for them. Well, are your children more glorious than Christ? Are we really saying that? Of course, in your heart of heart, you know that's not the case. You know Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything we own. Otherwise, we are bound for hell. If we don't think that, we are going to hell. Suffering for Christ and his church is infinitely more valuable. But we know that as Christians, sometimes... We forget the wonder and joy of Christ, isn't it? The world and its trinkets and all that it does, it just narrows that. And so we end up with this small vision of the magnificence and wonder of Christ. It's completely clouded. And so we start doing everything rather than for him, but for our comfort. We, just, we don't trust Christ enough. We don't want the tension of having to continually depend on him. You know, one reason we don't serve is because to serve Christ, really, you have to depend on him. And we don't like that. It's, it seems risky. It's like, I just got to depend on him. And I mean, the Lord hasn't said my prayer, so I'm just going to have to keep waiting on him. That's, that's hard, isn't it? That's hard, depending on him. But that is fleshly way of living. Because this passage is saying to us, depending on ourselves, is fleshly way of living. Because this passage is saying to us, if we're going to be true servants of his church, we must be willing to suffer. And to do that, we need to grow in seeing the glory of Christ. It is difficult to rejoice in suffering if Christ is small in your eyes. You can take that to the bank. You never rejoice in your suffering as long as the Lord of glory is very little in your eyes. And the reason you're not rejoicing in your suffering is because Christ is little in your eyes. There's no shame in admitting that, beloved. It's the beginning of true repentance. And let us pray, therefore, that God grows. Grows our love for Christ. Grows our love, our vision of the magnificence, the wonders. Let us pray that we see verse 15 to 20 every day. And we do that, obviously, by reading his word, by sitting under preaching and and growing and meditating on the glory of Christ. So let's pray for that. The second thing, and I'll end here. You'll be happy to hear. Let us pray that we see the church for what she is. She is the body of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 24. When I started this for the first time, this is what blew me away. I mean, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. For you. I'm like, Paul, you have never seen these guys. You've never met them. You've probably never even been at their cafes. You haven't gathered in their worship. How can you rejoice for people you have never met? 
How is that possible? Well, we carry on. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. And that's the answer, isn't it? Paul sees these people he has never met in Christ. He knows they are part of the mystical body of Christ. And he's been taken in by that. His love for Christ extends to the Colossians. How does a man become like that? To rejoice in his suffering for the sake of believers he has never met? Well, it is surely only the work of God, isn't it? So let us pray that God will make us see his church the way Paul sees the, saw the church. He saw them as people of the risen king. The glorious body of Christ. Paul somehow, beloved, it's, it's amazing. Paul somehow did not allow the imperfections and the sins of the ch- different churches he ministered to to cloud his love and care and service for him. I, I mean, if that doesn't sink in just how amazing that is, read the book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, the Colossians seem like the good guys. But read 1 Corinthians. I mean, he would say the same thing about them. That he's suffering for them. In fact, we know that because you just need to read 2 Corinthians to get that. There's all kinds of messiness going on in that church. And yet Paul loves them. Paul was so positive about the church of God and all its, all its challenge. Without condoning the sin. Yet positive about the people. To the point of suffering for them. And we need God to make us like that. Well, let me just conclude then. This evening we have looked at the second mark of ministry, suffering. True Christian ministry is suffering for Christ with joy. How do we do that? Well, first of all, what we need to do is we must accept this truth so it can transform us. Then we need to thank God for this truth because it is a privilege to suffer for Christ and his church. And then thirdly, we need to examine our lives. Where are we refusing to serve God because we are not willing to suffer for him? We must repent, don't we? We must repent of that straight away. And finally, we need to pray for God to give us this amazing vision of who Jesus is. A big vision of the big Christ. And the wonderful vision of the glory of the church. Amen.